Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 7, Long Duration Human Spaceflight. I'm your host, John Molnix, and I'm a volunteer here at the Cosmosphere. You can catch me on this podcast and also on my daily podcast, The Space Shot. We would love if you could leave a review for the Cosmosphere podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can help spread the word about the incredible work that's being done here at the museum simply by leaving a review for the podcast. This month's episode is coming out a bit later than usual, but I think you'll agree it was definitely worth the wait. I spoke with Chelsea Iwig, Megan Downs, and Doug Ebert about the effects of long-duration spaceflight on the human body. You'll hear about their background in just a moment. We had numerous technical issues to work through while recording this episode, but we were able to manage. I guess that's what we get for recording on Friday the 13th. Without any further delay, let's dive into that conversation. Today I'm talking with Megan Downs, Chelsea Iwig, and Doug Ebert. We're going to be discussing long-duration human spaceflight and the effects on the human body. Everybody, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So could you, uh, just all of you, just give me a little bit of background on yourselves. Uh, we, We can start with you, Megan. Sure. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I work in the... Um, Human Physiology Performance Protection and Operations Group. So I am the exercise discipline lead for that group. And I also do some work in EVA physiology, looking at bioinformatics. And I have my PhD from the University of Houston. That sounds awesome. So for, you know, just we'll we'll talk about this later, maybe. But, you know, EVAs, there's a lot of things that have to be done in preparation for an EVA. It's not just as simple as throwing on a spacesuit like they do in the movies or TV shows. (laughs) No, it's definitely not that simple. And there's a lot of overhead and um, engineering that goes into getting out the door. That sounds really cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about that. Chelsea, what about you? Um, I am uh, what's called a human factors engineer. So um, what I'm um, my job is concerned with making sure that anything within the vehicle that humans are flying in, anything that they need to touch or work with is um, safe and um, efficient and results in the highest level of performance. Um, so I, my current work is with Orion Human Engineering. So we're working on um, the next capsule that will take us to um, the moon and hopefully beyond to Mars. Um, my education is from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I got my bachelor's and master's from there in human uh, factors and systems. And I'm currently at Rice University working on my PhD in human computer interaction and human factors. That sounds really cool. So in terms of how like the control panels are set up, is that something that you work on just making sure it's the most like efficient layout then or? Yeah. So displays and controls is a big aspect of our job, but really anything in that vehicle that the humans will interact with from the um, waste management system all the way up to the displays and controls, we, um, a big portion of our job is called human in the loop testing, um, which is the testing we do to make sure 
that the humans are able to interact with those systems successfully. Doug, how about you? Uh, let's hear a little bit about your background. All right. Well, I'm a uh, senior scientist here at KBR Wiley at uh, JSC and uh, been here for about 14 years now. Uh, started out in the uh, cell, uh, cellular biology areas before we had a major reorganization to focus everything more on exploration back in the early 2000s. Then uh, I, I got into more uh, human uh, research using the crew and uh, ground subjects. Done a lot of ultrasound research over the years, uh, some uh, medical operations and monitoring. Done a lot of uh, research associated with our uh, one of our top uh, human spaceflight risks right now, the um, spaceflight-associated uh, neuroocular syndrome. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, training research, um, and I'm also currently working in commercial crew and Orion programs. The ocular, I know you mentioned that. That was kind of one of the things I was wanting to ask about. So, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. So for everybody here, I mean, space flight has gone from just the short one orbit jaunt with Yuri Gagarin back. Oh, gosh, almost 60 years ago now, I guess, at this point. <laughs> um, how is our understanding of long duration space flight changed from Mercury to Gemini, Apollo, Skylab, you know, then shuttle and now station. How have things changed over the decades for our understanding of how humans live and work in space? Who wants it? <laughs> I, can, I can start taking it and um, anyone that wants to jump in, go ahead. So back at the beginning eras of space flight, we really didn't know anything about what was going to happen to the human body for even short durations or long duration missions. So that was a huge risk. And as we've learned more and more, we know that there are acute adaptations and we know that there are long-term long -term adaptations. So every era of spaceflight and every mission that we go on, we learn more and more because we have medical tests and scientific research tests that are specifically designed to answer those questions and figure out how our body does adapt to microgravity, whether it's acutely or whether it's over time. And each one of the missions that we do, no matter how long it, what it is, it feeds into our bigger questions of exploration. So some of the questions we're trying to answer right now for exploration is what happens to your body when you're gone for two to three years and not exposed to Earth type of gravity? And Right now we're using the ISS as a test bed to answer a lot of those questions and try to extrapolate what we know from six month missions or one year missions to two to three year missions. And then another kind of additional factor to that that makes it even more complicated is as we talk about um, going from zero G to a partial gravity environment like, the Mar like Mars or the moon and then back to zero G, we need to try to figure out how we account for that middle term ground there where we're exposed to partial gravity for a short amount of time after being exposed to long to microgravity. So all of those are questions that we're trying to answer now and um, using ISS as a test bed as much as we can to answer those questions. Just to, just to add to that, uh, one of the other major contributors to our ability to look a little bit deeper into what's happening uh, during spaceflight, because we have gained a you know, much deeper understanding as time goes on, a lot of that is really the capability that we have um, within the programs themselves and the vehicles themselves. Because very early on, we had, you know, obviously Mercury, Gemini were just very small capsules, held one or two people. Apollo held three. Uh, shuttle, you know, we worked our way up to seven, and we had a much, much larger up mass 
We had entire laboratories that were launched in the back of um, the shuttle that allowed, uh, you know, entire missions full of life sciences research to be carried out. Uh, now we have ISS where we have near um, complete real-time uh, communication with, uh, with the crew. We can remotely guide them through very complex experiments. We have um, very advanced technology. Uh, we're able to fly uh, equipment that is much larger than we used to be able to fly and much quicker than we used to be able to fly them. So all of, all of these advances are, um, you know, the infrastructure is actually helping us to answer the life sciences questions. I just wanted to throw in from the psychology and behavioral health standpoint, we've also learned a great deal about who are the right people to send up and how to compose highly functioning teams that will be able to um, uh, deal with the stressors that, of long duration space flight, including the isolation and confinement that the crew will experience during these long duration missions. So it's it sounds like there's just way more that goes into that than most people would ever realize. I mean, a lot of a lot of us, I think, just look at the physical changes that you undergo when you enter space. But there's so many more aspects to that that we just started figuring out. And it sounds like all of you are just working on fascinating stuff. So let's dive into that a little bit more for like the acute. You were talking about acute versus long or. Was it acute versus long-term? Can you dive into a little bit more on that, what you mean by those terms? Sure. So immediately upon exposure to microgravity, um, you experience fluid shifts. Uh, there's just kind of space fatigue and dizziness. Uh, and those affect your ability to perform right away. Um, they affect your blood pressure regulation, anything that requires you to really have a clear head and function. Um, that's what affects you immediately upon exposure to microgravity. Um, from a more long-term adaptations, we see a variety of changes and uh, on a multi-system level. So we see changes in muscle strength and mass. We see changes in cardiovascular fitness. We see changes in cardiac function, so how your heart operates. Um, we see changes in bone mineral density. So all kinds of things like along that full spectrum. And uh, it's we do as much as we can to provide countermeasures for each one of those. But we're, like we said before, still learning every day on the best way to mitigate those microgravity-induced changes. Megan, you had mentioned that you, I think it was you, Megan, that you do a lot of work with uh, exercise. Is that correct? Correct. So that has a lot to do with, you know, bone density, with how muscles change and, you know, how the hell they get fatigued in zero G. What, what are some of the things that can be done on the station to help combat the loss of, you know, bone density of muscle mass? All, you know, I, I know the astronauts work out quite a bit. Can you give us a little bit more detail on that? Sure, I'd love to. So our astronauts, uh, well, first of all, exercise is our primary countermeasure against changes in cardiovascular fitness and changes in muscle strength and size and changes in bone health. So the astronauts exercise every day and sometimes multiple times a day. And they have a whole suite of exercise countermeasures on the ISS. So we have a treadmill, which is called the T2. We have a cycle ergometer, and we just we call that the CVIS. And then we have the advanced resistance exercise device, and that is called the ARED. So each one of these are 
designed to mimic exercise in 1G as much as possible because we know that gravity is a really important part of exercise. Well, and for the station, a lot of those, it sounds like there's there has to be a little bit of impact to simulate that gravity environment. How does the station, you know, I know there's a lot of really fine-tuned instruments up there. How do you keep the exercise equipment from interfering with the other functions, the other experiments that are going on on the station? So everything that happens on the ISS is extremely well-planned and organized. Um, So we don't have more than one crew member exercising on any one device at a time. And there's people where their exact job is to make sure that exercise doesn't interfere with other activities or other tests that are going on. So sometimes an astronaut is participating in a study where they're not allowed to exercise 24 hours or 10 hours or 12 hours before that event. So a scheduler makes sure that that's not going on. We also schedule around sleep and around meals. So exercise can't happen within a certain number of hours of waking up and falling asleep. And then obviously you don't really want someone eating right next to you while you're exercising. So they're very careful at how they schedule those events. And with the ISS, um, something that is quite different from what we will have in future missions on Orion is um, – there is a lot of space on ISS. There's a lot of space for to um, have these different kinds of exercise equipment. A-RED is really big. It takes up a lot of space. Those are not, uh, we will not have that kind of space on Orion. Um, Orion is very small. And, and so uh, a person exercising on Orion is pretty much going to be taking up a lot of the volume and the other crew members aren't going to be able to do a whole lot. So that's going to be a new consideration for future um, long duration missions. So the type of exercises you could do on Orion, then is that going to look something more like, I mean, did they do anything during the Apollo days then for that? (laughs) So one of our, uh, one of actually in the exercise group, one of our primary objectives going forward is evaluating these small exercise devices that are specifically designed for exploration. And like Chelsea said, we're going to go from a whole nice suite of three great exercise countermeasure devices to everything into a small box um, that will have to perform resistance and aerobic exercise. Uh, So that is very challenging. And then just to add on to what Chelsea said, another big challenge is that um, there is not room to exercise. So Literally, everyone else is going to have to watch the person exercise rather than go about and do other things. So it's going to be a big scheduling problem. And we're probably going to have to change uh, the type of exercise, the type of prescriptions that we give our crew members and figure out how to make those more efficient and more appealing to people that are not exercising at that (laughs) given time. So that that's really interesting that you mentioned that, because, I mean, the station, we it's it's a pretty big complex in terms of like just the amount of cubic feet that astronauts have to move around in. So I'm interested to see what exactly happens with with that, you know, the little exercise box, as it were. (laughs) So are we. So hopefully, actually, this summer, we are going to get a couple into our lab and we're going to get to check them out and uh, see how well they work. 
Very cool. So, you know, it's it's not just exercise that we have to worry about for long duration space flight. It's also radiation. Can can any of you talk a little bit about the effects of radiation on long duration space flight, both in low Earth orbit, um, at, you know, lunar gateway and then beyond to Mars? Well, I don't think any of us are particularly experts in the radiation area, okay. but um, I'll, I'll take a crack at it. Um, so the, the biggest thing to keep in mind for um, that right now, uh, you know, our, our current spaceflight experience has been largely in low Earth orbit, which is still uh, really quite protected by the Earth's magnetic field as far as any of the uh, galactic cosmic ray uh, radiation. We still get, um, you know, obviously some of the solar particle events. Um, some of that radiation gets through, but um, we're still protected from from the majority of that. Um, it, our only experience outside of that has been, of course, going to the moon, um, where even there, from what I understand, it is, there's still there are very weak magnetic fields um, that are, have still protected us a little bit. When we're talking about interplanetary uh, travel, uh, we're going to be exposed. Our crews are going to be exposed to you know the full brunt of sol- solar particle events and and other um, galactic cosmic rays. So uh, there, there are a lot of researchers that are working on those problems, uh, dealing with everything from, you know, creating uh, new ways to shield vehicles. Obviously, we don't want to have things that weigh a lot because things that weigh a lot cost a lot yeah. to get into orbit. Um, there are uh, groups that are working on um, radio protective drugs. Um, and a lot of the ongoing experiments, of course, have to be um, they're either cellular based or animal based because, um, you know, we, we collect as much data as we can with dosimeters and things like that um, from our crew. But again, it's not the it's not the same uh, environment that we expect to see once we go towards exploration flight. Um, so, you know, the animal models and the cellular models um, can can tell us, you know, a little bit more about what the effects are and what the, some of the protective um, measures might be. And the Orion human engineering team has been working with um, the radiation um, researchers and trying to even find ways, procedures, um, testing out procedures for sheltering in the case of a um, high radiation event. So um, even if Orion, you know, can't shelter completely in these high radiation events, we have ways of sheltering in bays and um, stacking stowage around the base um, for periods of high radiation. Um, and so we're working on procedures for that as well. Interesting. We've been doing some longer form questions. Let's get into a couple rapid fire questions here real quick. Um, first off, and we've talked a little bit about this, but how well does the research regarding long duration space flight in low Earth orbit translate to longer duration missions like a mission to Mars? So it really translates quite well. And that's that's something that, you know, we've talked a little bit about. Megan mentioned that we're really trying to use ISS as a test bed uh, for exploration and and do as much research as we can while we do have the capability on ISS. Uh, The environment's the same as far as the microgravity, uh, but there are some very important differences. Um, One difference that um, Kelsey talked about is, you know, the ISS is huge. Um, It's very large. So psychologically, you know, it's better to have that space available. Um, Physically, it's better. You know, they can actually move around a little bit more. We don't have to worry about the exercise constraints quite so much. Um, But also the radiation environment is different because they're still in low Earth orbit. Um, You know, we're not getting the same uh, radiation exposure that we would be getting on an exploration mission. 
so the, and one of the one of the more important, well, another important aspect also is that we have uh, near real time communication with the crew almost constantly. Um, so right now, our whole concept of operations for medical care and a lot of research activities is that we do remote guidance. We've talked about that a little bit before, and we're just not going to have that for exploration missions. So we need to move from a situation where the expertise is on the ground and we're talking the crew through a lot of procedures to a situation where the crew actually has that information uh, and they have those skills that they need to do whatever they need, whether whether they're emergency procedures or, um, you know, a routine type of procedure. So um, physiologically, you know, most of the research that we're doing obviously um, translates. We're going to have to somewhat extrapolate what we know from our six month and very limited one year missions on the ISS to a two and three year mission. But um, most of it translates very well with those, uh, you know, those caveats. Yeah. I, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I would think one of the biggest challenges um, that's uh, most different from ISS is going to be the behavioral and psychological health um, challenges of long duration space flight. We'll have some new um, potential stressors in uh, going to Mars, such as the Earth out of view um, issue. We've always had Earth in view, even going into going to the moon. And one of the um, most um, preferred uh, free time activities for a crew is to take pictures of Earth um, because it's just beautiful. And when we go to Mars, we're not going to be able to have that view or that free time activity to look back on Earth. Um, and so the isolation uh, and confinement is going to be a much bigger issue uh, for Orion long duration and long distance missions. So I was going to add two cents here is that it also very much so depends on what physiological system you're studying. So we see some systems where you have a plateau after a couple of months in space, or we see some systems that just continue to decline um, all the way through the time course that we have up to about six months now. So some of the things that we're trying to do right now is get time course measurements of how these different systems change during flight. And that will tell us and directly translate to whether or not there will be a linear loss over two or three years or whether we expect things to even out and and uh, whether whether or not six months is really representative of the rest of the mission. That's interesting. And, you know, that kind of dovetailed into one of those other questions. So I'm glad all of you were uh, answering in your own way there. Um, let's change it up with just kind of a fun little question here. Is it true that your fingernails fall off during a long duration spaceflight? And if so, do they grow back? Yes, and yes. Okay. <laughs> but it's less about the microgravity and more about the gloves right. on EVA. Okay. <laughs> right. Crew members whose fingernails fall off practicing EVAs doing neutral buoyancy lab runs too. Interesting. So that's something that I read. I think it was in an oral history for one of the Apollo missions, but just the gloves, like every time you would move your hand, that glove, your fingernails just jam the the back of it, no matter how short or the tip, the tip of the glove, no matter how short you keep your nails trimmed. So it's not just in space, then it's also during, uh, you know, practicing on the ground in the neutral buoyancy lab then. Right. It's a training. So one of the one of the things that I've heard it compared to um, and I, I meant to look up the uh, the inflation pressures, but I've heard it compared to actually trying to move your hand or move your body while inside an inflated basketball, because uh, I think the pressures are similar. Um, the pressure, the suit pressure is typically about four and a half PSI um, and a basketball. I don't know, I guess it's between 
four four to four to ten psi anyway so it wow. kind of gives you an idea of fighting every time they have to move that's why it's so exhausting to do eva see i i never i guess i never really looked at it in that way that's that's an insane amount of pressure to be fighting against almost yeah it is how does that then, you know, Megan, you're, you're kind of the EVA, um, expert here for everybody today. Um, how does that, like, what, what does that type of challenge look like? Say if astronauts are, you know, on a deep space mission and they have to do an unplanned EVA, how, how are you able to plan for something like that where they're, they're doing something that, you know, they might not have even ever had to think they were going to be repairing. Right. So actually all of our EVAs, even the ones that are unplanned, are very well rehearsed and practiced prior to spaceflight. So even if the astronauts doesn't know that they're going to do an EVA, um, there are a lot of practice runs that are done in the neutral buoyancy laboratory where they go out and they practice just doing things that we know might break or um, fixing things or turning screws or replacing panels. So Believe it or not, EVAs are actually very well rehearsed and well scripted right now for the ISS. And the reason that they we can do that is because the ISS was man-made. We know every single square inch of the ISS. And um, even if the EVA isn't planned, we have ground-based expertise that can walk someone through an EVA with real-time communication, like Doug was saying. Uh, but you do bring up a really good point in that as we go to exploration EVAs, we're not going to have that ground-based experience and we're probably gonna have communication delays. So that is going to require our crew members to be much more autonomous and make decisions on their own. And that really draws in a lot of what um, Kelsey was saying about um, making sure that the crew are functioning very highly on a cognitive level and that they can make good decisions and they can plan their own DBAs. You know, and that's that's one of the things that's kind of glamorized. And I don't know if any of you watch The Expanse, (laughs) one of my favorite shows on TV right now. But it's just, you know, when they go out and they do something, it's almost as if there's no thought given to any of that. So it's interesting to know that even if something is not planned, there's still tons of work that goes into planning something that we might think breaks. So that's that's interesting to know. I've got another quick question here. How is blood pressure impacted by the lack of gravity? So blood pressure actually going into microgravity, there are not huge effects of of, uh, overall blood pressure when you go into microgravity. The bigger issue is when you come back. So when you come after you've adapted to microgravity, um, you know, your body gets used to those fluid shifts that Megan was talking about earlier. And um, you actually start to lose your blood pressure regulation capabilities. So what, what happens is when you come back into, into Earth's gravity, or if we're talking about an exploration mission where you go into Martian gravity, if you stand up, then your legs are no longer used to kind of fighting that, that um, blood pooling down in your, in your legs anymore because it just kind of floated up towards your chest and your head. So what happens when you enter gravity is all that blood goes back into your lower body. You're generally a little bit, um, you have a little bit less fluid in your system to begin with. Uh, and then you get a, a condition that we call hypostatic or, uh, orthostatic hypotension where uh, you essentially faint because your blood pressure cannot be maintained. Your body basically doesn't have enough blood to pump up to your head and down you go. So uh, we have a lot of uh, countermeasures for that right now. Uh, we have some uh, compression stockings uh, that are used, uh, some uh, contour suits, uh, things that basically squeeze your lower body to keep that blood cooling there. 
Um, they also fluid load before they come home. Uh, they, they drink some uh, slightly salty water to actually have more fluid in their system right before they come home. So that's uh, you know, generally not, not a huge effect. Uh, there obviously are some effects that are somewhat variable for different crew members, actually, um, when they go up. But it's, it's the more important thing that we're worried about is when they come back down. We've talked a lot about the effects of longer duration spaceflight, but one of the other things that the Cosmosphere would like to know, too, is how how are diseases studied in space, um, whether it's like cancer or something like diabetes? How how are those studied differently in space versus here on the ground? Well, I, there are probably some, you know, some similarities. Uh, I mean, it is the, the ISS is a national laboratory. Um, there, as we talked about before, there's a lot of infrastructure that we have. There's a glove box uh, up there for anything that needs to be kept very clean or sterile. Uh, we have uh, cell culture capability. We have uh, rodent capability. So, you know, we've done all some of the very similar type of experiments that you would do on Earth um, have been done in flight. Of course, the logistics of, of flying rats or mice uh, or, you know, cell cultures, plants, all these sorts of things. Uh, we have huge teams of engineers that help put together the environments to get things, you know, on the vehicles to get them launched and delivered to ISS, and then they have to be maintained on ISS. And of course, if there are any sample returns, that all has to be worked out. Um, <clears throat> so it's much, much more difficult. But a lot of the same types of um, experimental techniques apply. They just have to be uh, translatable to to the zero g environment, and you have to be able to. Um, either have the experiments be completely autonomous. In other words, it's something that it just, it does themselves or it can be automated through a machine or a crew member has to be trained to do your experiment for you. And they're quite good at doing that. And um, they enjoy doing the variety of experiments that, uh, that are flown in these uh, different types of, um, uh, you know, life science experiments such as, you know, cancer and yeah. other diseases. Right. Yeah. So just to add on to that, uh, we have really cool capabilities on ISS. We can actually look at DNA right now. Um, we have the ability to collect blood and do some analysis on ISS or collect it and save it and bring it down so that it can be analyzed here on the ground. So those were huge, massive technological advances that will really promote understanding diseases in the future. Well, and if memory serves, didn't a new centrifuge fly up with the latest uh, CRS mission? I believe yes. so, yeah. I think I might have read that. Okay. So is that, you know, it, obviously the capabilities of the station are being constantly upgraded. Is there anything that all of you are looking forward to for, you know, a future capability on the station? <laughs> so, actually, I would say. <laughs> I know that's really broad. <laughs> yes, is the answer. Um, no, there are a lot of capabilities that we're looking at um, to put onto the station to actually answer questions about longer duration space flight. But Kind of the paradox right now is that what we're trying to do is limit the hardware and limit the equipment that we're putting on exploration vehicles simply because we don't have the mass and we don't have the size. So a lot of the technology is trying to figure out what do we absolutely need to have on these exploration missions. And for those things that we absolutely need to have, how do we make them smaller? How do we make them run more efficiently? So to Less highlight power. some of the things that Doug, you know, Doug talked about is, you know, we don't want to use the ground for a lot of that. So how do we get them to work without ground communication, without sending data down to the ground with less power? So um, it's a little bit of a paradoxical environment that we're working in right now. Yeah, we're almost in some ways we're asked to be we're, we're actually going backwards in capability. 
in a lot of ways. We're going back to a vehicle that is it's more similar to the Apollo era than it is to you know anything else that we've done so far. So, you know, we're kind of using our experience on ISS to to miniaturize and and you know make things more efficient. But in, in a lot of ways, it's um, we're going to have to take a step backwards in, in in research capabilities in order to actually get the mission completed. Right. And so I think a perfect example of that is you know, what we talked about before was with our exercise hardware is we're going from three things that we know we really, really like. And then it's up to our subject matter experts to figure out what part of exercise is really, really important that we carry on to these exploration missions and that nature is definitely part of these small exercise devices. How does how does, you know, simplifying these systems for those, you know, exploration missions, how does that play in then to the human in the loop testing that we do here on the ground? Right. So that's actually a really important question. And those are things that we try to answer every day from an EVA perspective and from an exercise perspective. Um, so one of the things that we look at for EVA is we don't want to we don't want a lot of overhead to get out the door. We don't want them to have to put on a lot of sensors or. Um, do a really long um, pre-brief protocol or anything like that. Um, and so that's where on the ground, we try to create base-like environments as much as possible, whether that's using thermal chambers where we can change the pressure and the CO2 and the O2 conditions to replicate those things and figure out what exactly do we need to do from the crew member. Um, so those are, it's a huge challenge trying to bring space down to earth, but it's something that we have to do in order to do human in the loop testing. One of the other things that I've kind of been curious about, just because I have to wear glasses, unfortunately, at, at times, it's kind of a pain in the butt. But it sounds like when astronauts are up in space that, that you know, the fluid shifts, how the pressure on, you know, the ocular nerve is, my, my understanding, that changes. How do we how do we mitigate against those changes for longer duration missions? So we really, right now, we really don't understand very well at all what's happening um, with the, you know, it's spaceflight associated neuroocular syndrome is what we call it, SANS for short. Um, right now, what we do is, since we know that this happens in, in almost all crew to a certain extent, is that we actually fly uh, space anticipation glasses, we call them. Uh, the optometrist will <laughs> actually project what they expect to be, um, you know, their prescription after they have, what what happens is you actually have a little bit of globe flattening, your eyeball uh, actually flattens. And uh, so your light path shortens a little bit and we get what we call a hyper optic shift. In other words, you get a little bit more farsighted than, than you were before. Um, some of our crews say, oh, this is great. You know, I can see the earth better than I ever could before, but then they're wearing reading glasses. So um, they're, Sometimes we miss with the space anticipation glasses and they'll have to fly some additional um, lenses up for them uh, on a resupply ship. But obviously during an exploration mission, we're not going to be able to do that. We need to get it right from the beginning or they need to have a way to either stop this from happening to, to, to uh, begin with. Or, you know, we need a way to make sure that they, they don't have uh, an issue, um, you know, physiologically. So you know there 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 are some some um, damaging some damage pathways that are occurring uh, at the back of the eye that we don't fully understand. Um, most of these we think are related to that headward fluid shift. Some of the early um, hypotheses were that <clears throat> it was a, a very high elevation in intracranial pressure. Some of our current data 
says that that's probably not the case. There may be, uh, you know, a mildly, a very consistently and mildly elevated intracranial pressure. But the fact that that blood is up there congesting your head and your neck um, is a um, likely a, a, a contributing factor. Uh, so most of the countermeasures that we're actually looking at and testing right now are related to mitigating that fluid shift and, and getting that venous congestion out of the head and neck. Um, three big ones, three big mechanical countermeasures that we're looking at. One is the lower body negative pressure. Uh, they're known as the, um, the, the Chibis suit is what we um, have tested a little bit on ISS. It's a Russian device. Uh, looks like the wrong trousers from Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> you've ever seen that. Um, it literally just creates a negative pressure around the entire lower body and pulls that blood back down to the lower body and, you know, out of the, out of the head. Um, the other one are, are, uh, that we use are uh, bracelet thigh cuffs or venous, venous constricting thigh cuffs. It's, I like to call it a poor man's LBNP or lower body negative pressure. It basically just uh, prevents some of the venous blood from uh, returning out of the legs. So it goes down into the legs and then it's just a cuff that prevents it from coming back. And then we're actually just um, completing a ground study right now looking at um, an impedance threshold device, which is essentially like uh, breathing in through some resistance. That just creates a vacuum in your chest, which draws blood back towards your chest. So in space, that would that would pull it, you know, down out of your head and neck. Um, and all of these work uh, quite well to varying degrees. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're looking at these in uh, as, as ways to potentially mitigate the uh, the effects of this uh, Sands eye problem that we have. Hmm. Well, and that's that, that's kind of an interesting way of of mitigating those factors i i think i'd read somewhere that can't the negative uh pressure like the lower body suits can't those pose a little bit of a risk they do i mean there's a risk with just like any medication there are always going to be some side effects with it um and you know we talked a little bit before about the orthostatic hypotension uh that can happen as well if you put somebody uh in you know, that's in microgravity, they're already a little bit low on fluid. You put them in um, too strong of a lower body negative pressure situation, all of that blood's going to go down to their lower body. It comes out of their head. You take too much blood out of the head and basically you faint. Um, so yes, th- there, are, there are physiological stresses and trade-offs that come with, uh, with any of these devices. Um, and, you know, the venous constrictive thigh cuffs, um, they, they, they work well for a short period of time, but, you know, you also have to worry about clotting factors. If you strap them on too tightly and you and you create too much, um, you know, stoppage of the blood flow to where it's not flowing, you can get clots that form, and obviously that's not good either. So yeah, we we are uh, need to be very careful with the trade-offs with any kind of mitigation that we potentially use, uh, and make sure that we're not doing more harm than good, and and balance those um, those effects. I would just say, um, I guess the big picture going forward is that um, as we go towards exploration, you know, we have to approach it as a system-wide um, pro- or system-wide question that we're trying to answer. And so, there's not going to be any one countermeasure that fixes everything. And so, um, as we go towards exploration, it's really giving us an opportunity to work with multiple different groups, whether it's looking at behavioral health, bone nutrition. Um, cardiovascular health, um, bringing all those groups together is a really good opportunity and and necessity to go forward and learn everything that we need to, that we need to learn in order to uh, promote exploration to Mars and Moon. 
And, and to take that even one step further, it's, you know, not only we really do need to consider, and we've learned, that's one of the things that we've learned as we've gone forward, is that all of these systems are very interrelated. And, you know, we can't continue to think of one, you know, the effects on one system don't affect the, you know, another system. So we need to consider um, the human body as a whole and uh, look at the interaction between all these systems. But it's also an interaction with the human system with the vehicle. Um, so there, there's a lot of, you know, in the new vehicle design, um, and even in the operations concepts as we, as we move forward, these vehicles are so small that, um, you know, we've touched on this a little bit before, there are always trade-offs. I mean, they're not going to let us have the equipment that we would like to have. Um, we're, we're not going to be able to have the capabilities that we'd like to have. So there are these trade-offs between, you know, are we really increasing, uh, are we decreasing our, our medical risk or our human system risk by loading on more engineering or does that just increase our engineering risk? Because the reality of the situation is, in you know, in an exploration situation, the the majority of the overall mission risk is actually on the engineering side. So um, it it does need to be put in context of the entire mission um, and the vehicle. So the, you know, they're all they're all things that need to be considered. Um, you know, that NASA is taking a look at from, from multiple angles to to actually make a mission to you know going back to the moon or or going to Mars even possible. And, and staying there, you know, and staying for longer periods than just, you know, a quick eight or 24 or multi-day, multi-day stay on the moon. It's going to be longer duration out there. So being able to make everything work together just sounds like it's an awesome challenge. And I'm sure all of you love being able to work on those problems every day. Absolutely. We do. <laughs> well, Chelsea, Megan, Doug, I want to just thank all of you for sitting down and talking with us today on this Friday, the 13th. Thank you, all of you, for working through these uh, technical issues we've had, which is kind of funny because today I've been finishing up another episode of mine on Apollo 13. So, yay, that we get our own little technical glitches here today. <laughs> Everyone, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. We'd love if you could share and subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are critical to the success of podcasts, so we'd appreciate it if you could take just a minute to leave a rating or review. For the Cosmosphere, I'm John Molnix.